8.4, the diversity of Ornithischian dinosaurs. Ah, this is part two of uh, the dinosaur paleobio readings, sorry. The Ornithischia are the second major dinosaurian clade, and they are relatively easy to diagnose. They have a pubis that points backwards, as well as over 30 other derived characters of the skull and skeleton. The Ornithischians arose during the late Carnian, sorry, the Carnian, late Triassic, 237 to 228 million years ago, or earlier, but fossils are extremely rare until the Jurassic. The Ornithischians were all herbivores, herbivorous, and they divide into two main groups, the Seropoda, the bipedal ornithopods, bone-headed pachycephalosaurs and horned ceratopsians, and the Thyreophora, the armored ankylosaurs and stegosaurs. However, several late Triassic and early Jurassic taxa have proved hard to determine phylogenetically. Um, Pisanosaurus, Eocursor, Heterodontosauridae, and Fabrosauridae. 8.4.1. The first Ornithischians. Pisanosaurus, from the early Norian of Argentina, is known from only its jaws, neck, and a few limb elements. The cheek teeth have low triangular crowns and a well-developed narrow neck beneath, and they are set over to the inside of the jaws, leaving a broad shelf on the outside. This suggests that Pisanosaurus had cheeks, pouches of skin that lay on either side of the tooth rows that could retain unchewed plant material while other food was being processed. Cheeks are typical of Ornithischians and other reptiles in which the skin of the face is firmly attached to the jaw margins just below the tooth rows. Further late Triassic Ornithischians had been identified from isolated teeth from North America and elsewhere, but these are now known to have come from basal archosaurs or to be indeterminate. Others include an uncertain heterodontosaurid from Argentina and Eocursor from the lower Elliot Formation, late Norian of South Africa. Eocursor is probably the most completely known Triassic Ornithischian, consisting of a partial skull and a relatively complete postcranial skeleton. It was about one meter long, and key anatomical features include leaf-shaped teeth adapted for plant-eating, a proportionally large hand with similarities to heterodontosaurids, a pelvis showing a mix of plesiomorphic and derived character states, and elongate distal hind limbs, suggesting well-developed running ability. It shows diagnostic ornithischian characters, such as the ilium with a narrow anterior process and the back-turned pubis, but other ornithischian characters of the skull cannot be determined because of incompleteness of the fossils. The third ornithischian clade to originate in the late Triassic is the heterodontosauridae. The best-known taxon, Heterodontosaurus, from the early Jurassic of South Africa was just over one meter long. Compared to Eocursor, the bodily proportions differ only slightly in the longer arms and shorter body. The skull shows the most unusual features. Heterodontosaurus, literally different-tooth reptile, has differentiated teeth, two incisors, a canine, and about 12 cheek teeth. The canines are long, and the lower one fits into a deep notch in the upper jaw. One specimen has no tusks, and it has been suggested that their presence may be a secondary sexual character of males. If so, the canine tusks may have been used for defense and sexual display, as in modern herbivorous mammals with tusks, such as certain pigs and the musk deer. Heterodontosaurus shows several derived features in the skull. The tooth-bearing edge of the premaxilla is a step down from the premaxilla. The premaxilla extends back to the contact of the prefrontal and lacrimal, 
the jaw joint is set well below the level of the tooth rows to increase the duration and force of the bite, convergent with other herbivorous dinosaurs and synapsids. The cheek teeth wear against the opposite teeth of the lower jaw, forming a straight line at the crest of the teeth. And the outer surfaces of the lower teeth fit inside the upper teeth and wear them from the inside. Remarkably, Heterodontosaurus was capable of small amounts of sideways chewing by rotation of the lower jaw about its long axis. Heterodontosaurids are known sporadically throughout the Jurassic, but an unexpected finding was Tian Yulong from the late Jurassic or early Cretaceous of China. This heterodontosaurid is a sur late survivor of the clade, but the fossils show evidence of long, singular, and unbranched filamental external skin features. If these thin filaments turn out to be homologous to feathers, then this discovery might suggest that all dinosaurs, not just some theropods, originally possessed feathers of some kind. Most cladistic analyses have placed Pisanosaurus as the basal ornithischian, although that might reflect in part the absence of data from the incomplete specimen. Further, the majority of ornithischia belong to Genosauria, the clade comprising the two major subclades, clades Thyreophora and Seropoda. However, Eocursor and Heterodontosauridae have been hard to place phylogenetically, and they are retained as basal to the Thyreophora-Seropoda split. 8.4.2 Thyreophora The Thyreophora includes the armored dinosaurs, the Stegosauria and the Ankylosauria, two clades that radiated in the Middle Jurassic. At the base of Thyreophora are a number of early Jurassic dinosaurs, some of which were formerly placed outside the clade. Most notably, the Fabrosaurids used to be classed as basal ornithischians, even more basal than the Heterodontosauridae in some cases. However, the, quote, Fabrosaurid Lesothosaurus shares one character with other Thyreophora, an anteroposterior ridge on the lateral surface of the serangular, and it is placed at the base of the clade in recent cladistic analyses. The, quote, Fabrosaurids, unquote, are likely not a clade. There are two difficulties in determining the phylogenetic position of, quote, Fabrosaurids, the limited number of characters shared with other taxa, and the fact that the group consists only of Lesothosaurus and a variety of incomplete and scrappy remains from the early Jurassic that have been given a variety of names. Lesothosaurus from the early Jurassic of Southern Africa is reasonably complete. It is a lightly built animal, 0.9 meters long, with long hind limbs and short arms. It has typical ornithischian pelvis, and the skull shows even more ornithischian characters, seen also in Heterodontosaurus. The tip of the premaxilla is toothless and roughened, and it is matched by an entirely new bone in the lower jaw, the unpaired predentary. The orbit also contains a new bone, the palpebral. The teeth are more typically ornithischian than those of Pisanosaurus because they have a bulbous base to the crown and rounded denticles on the edges. The wear facets lie symmetrically on either side of the pointed tip of the crown, which suggests an up-and-down action with no possibility of back-and-forwards or side-to-side -side chewing. Lesothosaurus lacks further obvious thyreophoran characters. Two early Jurassic taxa, Skeletosaurus from England and Scutosaurus from Arizona, share a transversely broad postorbital process of the jugal and parallel rows of keeled scutes on the back of the surface of the body, with later Thyreophora. Scutellosaurus is a modest-sized biped, with a skeleton similar to that of Lesothosaurus, but has numerous rows of keeled scutes over the back and in the regular rows on the flanks. 
8.4.3 Stegosauria, depleted dinosaurs. The Stegosauria is a small clade of 10 to 15 genera of Middle Jurassic to Late Cretaceous armored dinosaurs. Best known is Stegosaurus from the Late Jurassic of North America, which has a long, a low, almost tabular, sorry, almost tubular skull containing what has been identified as the smallest brain relative to body mass of any dinosaur. The hind limbs are much longer than the forelimbs, evidence of bipedal ancestry, and the massive arched backbone supports large triangular bone plates that sit on a double row. The arrangement of the plates has been debated. Was there a single row or two? This is hard to determine because the bony plates developed independently within the skin and did not meet the bones of the skeleton at all, but were presumably held firm by massive ligaments. A well-preserved specimen with the plates in position confirms the double alternating row. What were these plates used for? The plate surface is covered by branching grooves that probably housed blood vessels in life, meaning that the plates were covered by skin. Postulated functions for the plates include 1. Armor 2. Sexual display and species recognition 3. Deterrent display and 4. Thermoregulatory devices or some combination of these functions. Doubtless the plates had some protective role, functions 1 and 3, but they do not cover the vital organs, so they cannot be regarded as armor in the usual sense. Display and species recognition cannot be tested readily, and could combine with a thermoregulatory function 4 or some other function. Further, a species recognition would probably be important only if there were several species of stegosaurs living together, and yet that is not the case. The postulated thermoregulatory function is analogous to that proposed for the sales of polycosaurs. Maine et al. suggested that the internal arrangement of canals in the plates was not appropriate for a heat exchange function, whereas Farlow et al. 2010 argued that it was. They used CT scans to identify an internal system of five major pipes that branched upwards and were connected by a broad basal pipe, as well as narrower branching canal impressions on the outside of the osteoderms. By varying blood flow, perhaps Stegosaurus could indeed have radiated heat or limited radiation, depending on its internal body temperature. Other Stegosaurs had smaller plates, or none at all, but all had spines of some kind, whether restricted to the end of the tail, as in Stegosaurus, or more widely distributed, down the back and over the shoulders and hips. One such dinosaur, uh, Stegosaur, Miragia, Miragaya, of the late Jurassic of Portugal, had an elongate neck comprising 17 cervical vertebrae, but reasons for such an ap uh, adaptation remain uncertain. 8.4.4 Ankylosauria, armor-covered dinosaurs. Like the stegosaurs, the ankylosaurs arose in the Middle Jurassic, but they are not well known until the early Cretaceous. There are more than 50 species, Polycanthus, a notosaurid from southern England, is a typical early form with a mixture of spiny plates along the flanks and a fused mass of smaller plates over the hips. The ankylosaurids, such as Euplocephalus and Ankylosaurus, have broad armored skulls and a body armor of plates, rather than spines, covering the neck, trunk, and tail. Ankylosaurids also have a massive bony boss at the end of their tails, formed by the fusion of the first sorry, the last caudal vertebrae, and the inclusion of bony plates from the skin. A blow from this club could break bones, and would readily disable Tyrannosaurus or any other contemporary behavior. 
The ankylosaur skull is a heavy box-like structure with massive outgrowths of the normal bones of the skull roof by a mosaic of new bone plates generated within the skin over the head. These cover the upper temporal fenestra in all genera and the lower one in most. Only a small orbit and nostril remain, and even these openings are heavily overgrown. 8.4.5 Basal Ornithopods The remaining ornithischians are the Seropoda, comprising Ornithopoda, Pachycephalosauria, and Ceratosauria. Of these, the Ornithopods were the largest and most successful ornithischian group, containing some 150 species and achieving great abundance in Cretaceous faunas. Ornithopods were traditionally divided into Hypsilophodontids, Iguanodontids, and Hadrosaurids, but the first two terms refer to paraphyletic series. Among basal ornithopods, Hypsilophodon, from the early Cretaceous of England, was a biped that ranged in length from 3 to 5 meters. The body proportions are similar to those of Heterodontosaurus, except that the lack of tusks and its narrow lower midline, narrower in the midline. The ventral view shows the extent of the cheeks, represented by the broad area of the maxilla lying outside the tooth rows. An early view of Hypsilophodon was that it lived in trees, capable of grasping branches with its feet, but the foot was incapable of grasping, being either a typical elongate running foot with a hoof-like claw. Oh, being a typical elongate running foot with a hoof-like claw. Further, the end of the tail is sheathed in ossified tendons that stiffened it and probably caused it to act as a stabilizer during running. The limb proportions of Hypsilophodon are similar to those of fast-moving gazelle, especially those that are long, especially the very long shin and foot. Galton, 1974, made a detailed restoration of the muscles and limbs of Hypsilophodon based on muscle scars and processes that the bones in comparison with dissections of modern birds and alligators. The muscle names record the bones to which they attach at each end. They fall into four groups that define their functions in walking. One, protractors, muscles that pull the femur up forwards and up. Iliofemoris, pubo-iscofemoris, femoralis internus, upper part. 2. Retractors, muscles that pull the femur back. Puoischiofemoralis internus, lower part. Caudifemoralis longus, and brevis, adductor femoralis. Extensors, muscles that extend the lower leg. Iliotibialis, femotibialis, femorotibialis. Femorotibialis. Ugh, anatomy. Uh, and four, flexors, muscles that pull the lower leg back. Iliofibularis, flexor tibialis internus. During a single step, all of these muscles came into play. As the leg swung forwards, the protractors pulled the femur away. Did we, were we actually, this is where we were, right? I think so. As the leg swung forwards, the protractors pulled the femur forwards and upwards, and the extensors extended the lower leg. The foot touched the ground, and the power stroke in which the body moves forward was achieved by the re retractors and flexors, which pulled the femur and lower leg back respectively. More derived ornithopods include the second dinosaur ever named in 1825, Iguanodon from the early Cretaceous of Europe. Iguanodon has a horse-like skull with its strong, sorry, long jaws lined with batteries of teeth. 
In the skeleton, the prepubic process is expanded. The postpubic process is very short, and there is a complex lattice of ossified tendons over the neural spines of all vertebrae in the trunk and tail. The most remarkable modifications are seen in the hand, in which the carpals and metacarpal 1 are fused to form a single block in the wrist. Digit 1 is reduced to a thumb spike. Digits 2 through 4 form a bunch, and digits 2 and 3 have small hooves. This hand was clearly used in walking, the hooves, in defense, or display, the thumb spike, and in gripping. Iguanodon could walk on all fours, or equally well on its hind legs alone, and the tail and the backbone extended horizontally. Hmm, Darren disagreed with that in class. wonder if that's uh, old information in this book. Whereas the first Iguanodon was named on the basis of isolated remains from southern England, numerous complete skeletons were famously recovered in 1877 from a coal mine in Belgium. Another ornithopod, Oranosaurus, from the early Cretaceous of North Africa, has spines on its back, perhaps supporting a sail for thermoregulation. The snout is elongate and rather flattened. The Rabidontids include the late Cretaceous forms from Europe, such as Rabidon and Zalmoxes, some seemingly restricted to islands. 8.4.6. Hadrosauridae, the duckbills. The most diverse and most successful ornithopod clade were the hadrosaurs, or, quote, duck-billed dinosaurs of the late Cretaceous. North America, Central Asia, oh, they are especially well-known from North America, Central Asia, and China, where hundreds of specimens have been found. Frequently, three or four distinct hadrosaurian species are found side by side in the same geological formation, and it seems evident that large mixed groups roam over the low lush lowlands rather as closely related antelope do today in Africa. The hadrosaurs are famous for their expanded duck-like duck bills, in which both the premaxillae and maxillae are flattened and spread out to the sides. The nostrils are long and low, and the orbit and lower temporal fenestra are located well back. The teeth of the hadrosaurs consists of long rows of grinding cheek teeth, set well back from the front of the mouth and arranged in closely packed batteries within the jaws. There may be as many as five or six rows, each containing 45 to 60 teeth that are formed in the gum tissue at the bottom and move up progressively into the jaw margin where they come into wear. Hadrosaur jaws were used in powerful chewing actions. Wear surfaces on the teeth can be seen in cross-section through a hadrosaur skull as sloping downwards and outwards. Hadrosaurs had complex grinding teeth and could clearly consume unusually tough vegetation. The jaws could move sideways and back and forwards to a little to power the grinding action. Only the top rows of teeth are used in, at any time, are in use at any time, but they must have worn down quite rapidly because there are so many backup teeth below ready for use. This advanced and evidently powerful plant grinding jaw system may be one of the reasons for success of the hadrosaurs. But what did they eat? Some hadrosaur specimens may have have been, quote, mummified, preserved with their skin and some internal parts intact. These include stomach contents such as conifer needles and twigs, as well as other land plants. The conifer diet is confirmed by hadrosaur coprolites, as well as by microware analysis, the interpretation of microscopic pits and scratches on fossil teeth. Hadrosaurs were terrestrial herb browsers that presumably stripped trees of their foliage by stretching up on their hind legs. Hadrosaurs were once said to have spent most of their time swimming in lakes, a view perhaps derived from their duckbills. They could doubtless have swum, but the skeleton is particularly adapted for efficient running, although the posture has been debated. 
did hadrosaurs habitually walk and run as bipeds with the body held horizontally or as quadrupeds? The consensus, based on postcranial anatomy, soft tissue preservation, and trackways, is that hadrosaurs were predominantly quadrupedal. Their hands bear small hooves on the fingers, and the forelimb bones are more adapted for weight-bearing than for grasping. Hadrosaurs have essentially all the same skeletons and skulls, but some have an impressive array of headgear. The premaxillae and nasal bones extend up and backwards to form some kind of high, flat-sided helmet, either low or high, square or semicircular. In others, a long tube, spike, or forwards-directed rod. The nasal cavities extend from the nostrils into the crests, and it was once assumed that they acted as, quote, snorkels, especially in Parasaurolophus. This is impossible, however, as there is no opening at the top of the crest. Yeah, that's an easily falsifiable hypothesis right there. There are four separate air passages within the crest, two running up from the nostrils and two running back down into the throat region. Air breathed in or out through the nose had to travel around this complex passage system. What was the function of hadrosaur crests? Probably they were used as visual species recognition and sexual signaling devices, just as modern birds may have colorful and often elaborate patterns of feathers to identify potential mates and to signal their position in dominance hierarchies. Males and females of the same species had rather different crests, and the crest was undeveloped in juveniles. There has been a vigorous debate about whether hadrosaur crests and such exaggerated structures in other dinosaurs were used primarily for species recognition or in pre-mating contests. An exceptionally preserved, quote, mummified specimen, ooh, spucimen, a typo, of the hadrosaur Edmontosaurus even had a soft tissue crest like a cock's comb. Whatever the function of these crests, Weishampel, 1997, has shown that the hadrosaurs augmented their visual display with an auditory one, too. The shapes of the air passages within the crests are like musical wind instruments. A sh powerful snort would create a low, resonating note, and the shape of the air passages in males and females and in juveniles would have given a different note. Species differences would have made these differences even more marked. We can imagine that the late Cretaceous plains of Canada and Mongolia reverberating to deep growls and blaring squawks of the hadrosaurs going about their business. Box 8.4, Hadrosaur Tooth Wear Mechanics. Biomechanics, excuse me. Ornithopod dinosaurs were unique among reptiles in that they could chew their food. Hadrosaurs in particular had complex teeth comprising six, six tissues that generated an efficient and complex grinding structure. Further, hadrosaurs and other ornithopods might have had specialized joints in their jawbones that permitted some lateral movement of teeth across each other, although this has been debated. Chewing is normally seen as a mammalian specialty. We chew by being able to move our jaws back and forwards, and especially from side to side. So the premolars and molars move across each other, tearing and reducing the food to small pieces. It was argued that ornithopods could all chew in one of two ways. In the early ornithopod Heterodontosaurus, a special ball and socket joint at the front of the jaws between the dentary and predentary allowed rotation as the jaws opened and closed. It was proposed also that later ornithopods had an additional joint running along the side of the cheek that allowed the upper jaw to move outwards as the lower jaw closed upwards. This pleurokinetic hinge was said to run between the jaw-cheek unit, uh, that is the maxilla, lacrimal, jugal, quadratojugal, and quadrate, and the skull roof bones above. However, a more recent study has cast doubt on the idea of pleurokinesis because such a, quote, flapping cheek, unquote, model 
uh, requires too many other elements of the skull to be freed for motion, and detailed studies of sutures does not confirm that there was a mobile joint. Despite the possible rejection of pleurokinesis, hadrosaurs could clearly move their jaws some distance from side to side, as well as backwards and forwards. Tooth wear analysis shows multiple sets of parallel grooves in these directions, with their massive tooth batteries comprising five or six rows of teeth for a total of as many 500 teeth in each jaw, hadrosaurs had taken a heavy-duty chewing and frequent tooth replacement to an extreme. In detailed studies of the tissue characteristics and wear rates of hadrosaur teeth, Erickson et al. 2012 identified six tissues. These include the four components of mammalian grinding teeth, enamel and orthodentine, as well as independently derived secondary dentine and coronal cementum. In addition, the team identified two further dental tissues, giant tubules, infilled pulp cavity chamber branches, and a thick mantle dentine. These observations suggest that hadrosaur teeth were among the most histologically complex of any animal. Mechanical experiments showed that these tissues wear down at different rates and can leave a ridge surface after wear, a feature previously observed only in mammals, and that can, be, that can provide a long-lasting grinding tooth surface. 8.4.7 Pachycephalosauria, the boneheads. The pachycephalosaurs, thick-head reptiles, are a small clade of some 15 mainly late Cretaceous herbivores from North America and Central Asia. They're diagnosed by their unusually thick skull roofs. The parietal and frontal bones are fused into a great dome in some forms with a bone up to 0.22 meters thick in a skull that is 0.62 meters long. Holy crap. This is great. This great thickened mass of bone is ringed by the normal skull roof elements, as well as two supplementary supraorbital elements. Several of the skull bones are also ornamented by lines of bony knobs. The pachycephalosaurs may have used their thickened skulls in budding contests when seeking mates, as seen today among wild sheep and goats. No, they did not. The pachycephalosaur, a biped, adopted a horizontal backbone posture during charge so that the force of the impact ran straight round the skull margins down the neck of the shoulders and hind limbs. This system of force dissipation was paralleled in the dinocephalian synapsids. Confirming evidence for this theory is that the presumed males have thicker skulls than females. Hmm. 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 Pachycephalosaurs are also diagnosed by an unusually broad pelvis, with generally curved iliac blades that contact the ribs of up to eight sacral vertebrae. This firm attachment of the pelvis may arise from the need to dissipate the forces of headbutting. Pachycephalosaurs are allied to the horned ceratopsians, forming with them the clade marginocephalia, on the basis of several synapomorphies, including the combination of the squamosal and parietal bones in the skull roof to form a narrow shelf that extends over the back of the skull. 8.4.8 Ceratopsia, the horn-faced dinosaurs. The Ceratopsia, literally horned faces, comprise a relatively large group of about 70 genera known mainly from the early Cretaceous of Asia and the late Cretaceous of North America. All are diagnosed by a triangular skull when viewed from above, an additional beak-like rostral bone in the midline at the tip of the snout, a high snout, and broad parietals at the back. Some early ceratopsians, such as Cetacosaurus from the early Cretaceous of Eastern Asia, were bipeds that had body forms very similar to ornithopods. 
but the skull is nearly is clearly ceratopsian, showing the characteristic parrot-like, quote, beak. New studies show some remarkable aspects of juvenile behavior and po postural change during growth in this dinosaur. Protoceratops from the mid-Cretaceous of Mongolia and China was a quad quadruped with the beginnings of a nose horn, a thickened bump in front of the orbit. It also shows a, major sec a second major ceratopsian characteristic, a bony frill formed from the parietals and squamosals. The frill probably served as the origin of the portions of portions of the jaw and adductor muscles, the posterior adductor mandibularis muscle, which would have produced a strong biting force. The later Neoceratopsians have a skeleton with adaptations for galloping, long limbs, digitigrade posture. The vertebrae of the neck and trunk have high neural spines for the attachment of powerful muscles to hold the head up, and there are bundles of ossified tendons over the hips. The real variation is seen in the skulls. Some forms, such as Centrosaurus, have a simple horn formed by fused nasal bones, whereas others have this and a pair of, quote, horns on the jugals. The frill may also be short or long, and indeed Triceratops slash Taurosaurus had a 2.6 meter long skull, in which the frill is the longest portion, although the largest skull known from altogether the largest skull known from any land animal. The frills and horns may have been used in defense, and as visually spe as visual species signaling structures as well as in threat displays. Male Ceratopsians may have engaged in head wrestling with the horns interlocked, just as deer do today. Box 8.5, Dinosaurian Crushes and Postural Change. Cetacosaurus juveniles traveled in groups, as shown by spectacular clutches preserved instantly beneath volcanic ashfall deposits in northeast China. These specimens come from the famous Jehol group, better known for the remarkable fossils of feathered birds and dinosaurs. The majority of these fossils are preserved in thin-bedded muddy limestones laid down in lakes. However, around the village of Lujiatun, known as the Chinese, quote, Pompeii, dinosaur fossils have been preserved under volcanic ash. The sediment is gray in color and contains fine-scale ash, as well as larger pieces of partly molten rock, and the dinosaurs were evidently preserved just like the human victims at Pompeii, instantly, and more or less in life position. Dinosaurs under the ash are often in crouching posture, Smaller dinosaurs may occur in groups, all pointing in the same direction, as if running away from the looming ash, and sometimes even with their heads apparently raised, as if gasping for air in the poisonous fumes. The most common dinosaur at Lugiatun is Cetacosaurus, and hundreds of specimens have been found, many of them juveniles, in groups. There is also a flourishing black market in such specimens, and some, quote, clutches turn out to be composites of in isolated individuals artfully assembled with uh, plaster and filler. It is usually easy for museum experts to identify fakes. Typical clutches from Lugiatun have uh, comprise five or six individuals, but examples of up to 34 individuals have been reported. These are probably true original examples of behavior because the ash fell fast and preserved them instantly. Other kinds of aggregations of dinosaurs are entire sedimentary, in which case carcasses were washed together by ri rivers, for example. There could be many reasons for such aggregations, and these seem common enough in dinosaurs. Juvenile-only aggregation is not common in modern archosaurs, such as crocodilians and birds. 
In some examples, such as ostriches and ravens, while adults, adults are preoccupied with breeding, nesting, and the care of eggs and hatchlings, non-breeding juveniles and adults may congregate together um, elsewhere in social groups of mixed age. Oh, that's a Verrucchio paper. Nice. Further, in species of birds and mammals there are, where there are complex breeding rituals, and especially where a single dominant males may build harems, the unmated juveniles or subadult males live safely in non-breeding herds, separate from the mated single dominant males, sorry, separate from the mated adults. Most of the Lugiatun juveniles appear to be two to five years old, so they were probably protective aggregates rather than clusters of frustrated males cruising in search of unattended females. One example, in one example, the six juveniles comprise five two-year-olds and one three-year-old, as determined from bone histology and lags. Cetacosaurus juveniles were quadrupedal and the adults were bipedal. Bone histology shows they switched postures at about the age of four. By measuring relative limb lengths and studying bone histological sections of a succession of individuals from one-year-old juveniles to ten-year-old adults, most authors could show how relative changes in the rates of bone growth drove the posture switch. In the babies, fore and hind limbs were both long. Then in the forelimb, the forelimb showed limited growth, whereas the hind limb grew much faster during the middle part of ontogeny. The primitive posture for dinosaurs was bipedal, and yet several groups became secondarily quadrupedal, generally associated with large size. Sauropodomorphs, thyreophorans, iguantodontian ornithopods, and ceratopsians. It is perhaps surprising, then, that some basal ceratopsians, such as Cetacosaurus, were still adult bipeds, sorry, bipedal as, as adults, retained in a quadrupedal hatching, hatchling and juvenile posture. 8.5. Were the dinosaurs warm-blooded or not? A heated debate has raged since 1970 concerning dinosaurian physiology. Ever since dinosaur paleobiologists realized that many dinosaurs were active animals, the question has continued to resurface. Bakker, in particular, argued that all dinosaurs were fully warm-blooded, just like living birds and mammals, and that this explains their success. His claim was that the dinosaurs were endotherms, animals that control their body temperature internally, rather than ectotherms, which rely on external sources of heat. This is part of an important and wide-ranging discussion among biologists who seek to understand why birds and mammals have such different physiologies from fishes and reptiles. Additional lines of evidence have been brought to bear, but the debate appears to be coming to a resolution. The key evidence comes from feathers, isotopes, bone histology, and locomotory mechanics. 8.5.1. The Evidence. Feathers. Until the 1990s, it would have been rash to suggest that dinosaurs had feathers. Even though it was widely accepted that birds evolved from among theropod dinosaurs, Archaeopteryx was the oldest feathered animal, and feathers could not be assumed to have existed deeper in the phylogeny, following the principle of the extant phylogenetic bracket. Dinosaurs are bracketed by birds and crocodiles. However, the abundant finds of feathered theropods from China have shown that a broad array of theropods and dinosaurs broad array of theropods had feathers, and feathers of some kind might also be present among ornithopod dinosaurs, such as Tianyulong and Cetacosaurus, and so perhaps among all the dinosaurs. 
Now, feathers exist for insulation, flight, signaling, and camouflage, and it is well understood that flight came sometime after the other two functions. So, insulating feathers in small theropods, and perhaps in juveniles of larger forms, would imply some form of endothermy. Isotopes. Paleontologists have had a long love affair with isotopes, variants of chemical elements. Measurements of the different isotopic states of carbon and oxygen can be used to reconstruct aspects of the external environment, paleotemperature, composition of pond water, diet, as well as the physiology of ancient animals. Clumped isotope thermometry is a new way of considering oxygen and carbon isotopes at the same time. It is based on the thermodynamic preference of rare heavy isotopes of carbon and oxygen to bond with each other, or clump in carbonate-containing minerals, including the apatite, calcium phosphate, of fossil bone. In a clumped isotope study of six sauropod bone samples from different locations, Eagle et al. 2011 reconstructed body temperatures of 36 degrees to 38 degrees, similar to those of most modern endothermic mammals. This temperature range is 4 degrees to 7 degrees lower than predicted by a model that showed scaling of dinosaur body temperature with mass, which could indicate that sauropods had mechanisms to prevent excessively high body temperatures from being reached because of their gigantic size. The data support the model of sauropod gigantism that indicates high body temperatures and rapid growth to reach their adult, large adult body size fast. Bone histology. Bone histology has long been used as a potential indicator of the thermal state of extinct vertebrates. Early work on the bone histology of dinosaurs showed that they had highly vascular bone, apparently very like that of mammals, but quite unlike that of the bone of lizards and other living reptiles. Many specimens of dinosaur bone show a vascular primary structure and extensive secondary remodeling with the development of true haversian systems. This was interpreted by... Bakker, 1972, as evidence for mammal-like endothermy in dinosaurs. True haversian bone, however, can occur in modern ectothermic reptiles, as well as in endotherms. And many small mammals and birds have no haversian systems, despite having the highest metabolic rates found in endotherms. A second histological argument for dinosaurian endothermy is based on the presence of fibrolamellar bone in many dinosaurs. This is a type of primary compact bone that grows quickly, without the formation of growth rings, and it is found today in large, fast-growing mammals uh, and some birds. Fibrolamellar bone implies only fast growth rates and not necessarily endothermy, so the dinosaurs that have it grew fast to reach sexual maturity. Modern reptiles have lamellar zonal bone, which grows slowly and often intermittently, producing growth rings or lines of arrested growth when food supplies are limited or climates are unfavorable. Lines of arrested growth are known to be annual in, for example, crocodilians. Lamellar zonal bone has been reported in many dinosaur groups, and indeed, lags are most commonly counted in dinosaurs to indicate their growth rates. It is assumed that these indicate annual seasons of cold climate or low food supplies. Such cyclical growth patterns occur also today in large ruminants in all climate zones so confirming that lags in dinosaurs need not indicate ectothermy, but that they were perhaps primarily endothermic, but suffered slowdowns in growth each year. Locomotory Mechanics It is commonly understood that modern ectothermic reptiles, such as lizards and crocodiles, may be capable of rapid movement for short periods, but that they soon tire. 
Indeed, the common image of modern reptiles, especially lizards and turtles, is that they spend much of their time lying around and not moving at all. Mammals and birds, on the other hand, are in constant motion and can run or fly long distances. Their endurance is associated with endothermy and with efficient mechanisms to convert large amounts of food into energy. In a study of numerous bipedal dinosaurs, Ponser et al. 2009 concluded that all were endothermic. Their approach used two biomechanical methods, one that estimated the locomotoric cost from limb length and the other from active muscle volume. Using the first method, it had been shown that hip height explained 98% of the cost of transport in modern mammals, birds, and reptiles. And this is simple to measure in dinosaur skeletons. The second method is more complex and is based on estimates of the volume of the major leg muscles relative to the overall body mass. Faster speeds require relatively higher muscle mass and require higher metabolic rates. The calculations required estimates of the ground uh, reaction force for each dinosaur, proportional to body mass and speed of movement as expressed through each limb, and the mean fascicle length of the major leg muscles. A fascicle is a bundle of muscle fibers that share a function, and these depend on the pose of the limbs. When the cost of transport was calculated for dinosaurs with large and small, dinosaurs large and small, while walking and running at slow and fast speeds, dinosaurs were nearly always plotted in the region of energy requirement seen in modern endotherms. These results indicate that larger bipedal dinosaurs, at least, were endothermic because there's no other means by which an endotherm could sustain locomotion and the necessary metabolic rate. Results for smaller dinosaurs weighing less than 20 kilograms indicated intermediate physiological positions, ectothermic at low speeds and endothermic at high speeds. However, the calculations were conservative, and the plots are not exclusive for endotherms. At low energy, an endotherm can plot as an ectotherm, but an ectotherm can never plot as an endotherm. Further, additional evidence, e.g. feathers, bone histology, points to endothermy in small bipedal dinosaurs. 8.5.2. Alright, I can't remember where I left off. 8.5.2. Endothermy and gigantothermy. Among living vertebrates, it is commonly understood that birds and mammals gain the advantages of endothermy, e.g. constant activity, ability to operate at night, ability to live in cold climates, at a cost. Typically, an endotherm has to eat ten times as much as an ectotherm of the same body mass. For example, a lion is constantly alert and must bring down prey every few days to feed the internal furnaces that generate her high metabolic rate. Meanwhile, at the nearby waterhole, a crocodile of identical body mass sleeps most of the time and has to kill an antelope only every couple of weeks or so. This differential is more marked among smaller mammals. Small endotherms, such as shrews and hummingbirds, have to feed nearly continuously to, in order to sustain their relatively very high metabolic rates. In considerations of feathers in dinosaurs, it is assumed that only smaller species and the juveniles of large species had full coverings of insulating feathers. In the warm Mesozoic climates, a huge tyrannosauroid or sauropod would have suffered more problems with heat dissipation than with, uh, oh, would have suffered more with problems of heat dissipation. Elephants today waste a great deal of energy by sustaining a high metabolic rate, but at the same time, wallowing and flapping their ears to lose heat. As noted earlier, sauropods achieved larger size than any mammal today, perhaps by taking advantage of a less efficient physiology. This controlled risk of overheating while reducing their food requirement substantially. 
thermal uh, psych thermal physiologists have identified this strategy as gigantothermy, the ability to maintain a constant body temperature by virtue by virtue of being huge. Experiments done on large living reptiles have shown that rates of internal temperature change are very slow during normal subtropical daily air temperature fluctuations. In living reptiles, over 30 kilograms in body weight, the rate of heat loss, thermal conductance, becomes equivalent to that of mammals. By extrapolation, the body's temperatures of medium to large-sized dinosaurs living in similar climatic conditions would have, would have remained constant to within 1 or 2 degrees Celsius inertially without substantial internal heat production. In calculations of likely body temperatures of all dinosaurs in different paleoclimate zones, Seebacher, 2009, concluded that ectothermy, gigantothermy, was likely in all dinosaur groups, except for Coelosaurian theropods and smaller ornithopods, hypsilophodontids, which were presumably endothermic. 8.6. Pterosauria. The pterosaurs, literally winged reptiles, known from about 140 species, existed for nearly the same span of time as the dinosaurs. They were important small fish eaters of the Jurassic and adopted a variety of ecological roles in the Cretaceous when some truly gigantic forms arose. 8.6.1 Pterosaur Anatomy and Ecology The first pterosaurs from the late Triassic, such as Eudimorphodon from northern Italy, show all the unique characters of the same group. The short body, the reduced and fused hip bones, the five long toes, including a divergent toe five, the long neck, the large head with pointed jaws, and the arm. The hand has three short grasping fingers with deep claws and an elongate fourth finger that supports the wing membrane. In front of the wrist is a new element, the pteroid, a small pointed bone that was attached to the wrist and that supported a small anterior flight membrane. The pelvis is a solid, small structure with a short, blunt pubes and ischia. An additional element, the prepubis, is attached in front and may have had a function in supporting the guts or in assisting respiration. The tail is stiffened with elongate zygopophyses and chevrons, and it may have been used as a rudder during flight. Pterosaurs diversified in the Jurassic and Cretaceous. Basal lines are often grouped in the paraphyletic, quote, Ramphorhynchoidea, but most diverse was the clade Pterodactyloidea, which arose in the middle or late Jurassic and radiated during the Cretaceous. The greatest diversification in terms of species numbers and morphological disparity was in the early Cretaceous, when pterodactyloids showed the broadest range of sizes, head shapes, and feeding modes. The broad outlines of pterosaur phylogeny are well agreed, but the relationships of Eudimorphodon and Eurignathans and some of the Cretaceous pterodactyloids are still debated. Much of the diversity of pterosaurs may be appreciated by an examination of a selection of skulls. First, skull lengths vary considerably from 90 millimeters in Eudimorphodon, little larger than a seagull, to 1.79 meters in Pteranodon. These skulls also show some broad evolutionary changes forward shift of the jaw joint to lie below the orbit, elongation of the skull and fusion of the nostril and antorbital fenestra with reduction of the nasal bone. Pterosaur skulls suggest a range of feeding styles. The long spaced teeth of Rampharynchus, Pterodactylus, and Ornithochirus were probably used for piercing and holding fish, whereas the shorter teeth of Dimorphodon may have been used for insect eating. Tenochasma and Pterodostro 
have huge numbers of slender teeth in each jaw, i.e. 400 to 500 flexible teeth in pterodastro, sorry, pterodostro, which were probably used to filter microscopic plankton from the water. The teeth would have acted as a fine filter mesh for trapping thousands of small organisms that could be licked off and swallowed. The jaws of Zungaripterus and Pteranodon are deep and hatchet-shaped and bear very few or no teeth. Pteranodon probably also fished by beak trawling and swallowed its catch rapidly so that no teeth were needed, whereas Zungaripterus had reinforced teeth that suggest a diet of hard-shelled organisms. Pteranodon one of the best-known and largest pterosaurs of the late Cretaceous of North America had a wingspan of 5 to 8 meters. The skull is longer than the trunk, and its length is doubled by the pointed crest at the back in males. The function of the crest has long been debated, but wind tunnel experiments show it had negligible effect as a weathercock to keep the head facing forwards during flight, and was almost certainly solely a sexual display structure. As well as all, as were all the weird and wonderful head crests of other pterosaurs. Each massive cervical vertebra in Pteranodon has a pneumatic foramen in the side that led to open spaces inside, a weight-reducing feature. The dorsal vertebrae are nearly all involved in one or two heavily fused girder-like structures, the notarium and the syncecrum, which stabilize and support the shoulder girdle and pelvis. The shoulder girdle is attached to the side of the notarium above and to a large bony sternum below, which holds the ribcage firm. The sternum bears a slight keel for the attachment of flight muscles. This massive stabilization of the shoulder girdle and pelvis is typical of pterodactyloids, and it was probably related to flying stresses. Pteranodon was not the largest pterosaur. That honor probably goes to Quetzalcoatlus from the upper Cretaceous of Texas, where else, which is represented by parts of a single wing, having an estimated wingspan of 10 meters. Although Hatsegopteryx from Romania may have been even larger, with a wingspan of 10 to 11 meters. Quetzalcoatlus and Hatsegopteryx were the largest known flying animals, three times the size of the largest bird, and more like a small airplane in size than any familiar living animal. These pterosaurs, the Asdarkids, are known from the fragmentary remains of the uppermost Cretaceous of many parts of the world. The mode of life of these amazing animals has, however, been difficult to discern. 8.6.2 Pterosaur Flight Pterosaurs were sometimes portrayed in the past as rather inefficient gliding animals that were incapable of flight. On the ground, their locomotion was supposed to have been an awkward bat-like form of progression, consisting of staggering and tumbling on all fours like a broken umbrella blowing along the street. Current work uh, counters these views and presents the picture of pterosaurs as reasonably efficient flapping flyers, like modern birds, but adopting many different, sorry, adopting different principles. The first line of evidence is the possession of wings and other aerodynamic and flight adaptations, hollow bones, and streamlined head. The second key aspect is that the pterosaurs were almost certainly endothermic, as they had short hairs over the thorax, neck, and upper arms. Only endotherms have external insulation, and endothermy gave the pterosaurs the high, sustained metabolic rates necessary for flight. The pterosaur wing is composed of skin that attached to the side of the body and along the entire length of the arm and the elongated flight finger 4. 
It was once argued that the pterosaur wing was a slender structure rather like that of a gull, but it was in fact broader as the flight membrane also attaches to the femur in well-preserved specimens. Understanding the exact shape of the pterosaur wing is difficult because so much of it is composed of soft tissue. But the study of specimens and calculations of maximum aerodynamic efficiency point to a wing whose anterior margin swept well forward and whose wingtip was curved backward during the downwards power stroke. The wing membrane was composed of several skin layers, up to one millimeter thick in all, reinforced with parallel stiff fibers, termed actinofibrils, uh, particularly in the distal region. The actinofibrils, fibrils? Actinofibrils were located primarily in the outer sector of the wing, radiating backwards from the wing finger. They acted to spread the wing and keep it spread by transferring forces in the right wing, mem sorry, in the wing membrane back to the fourth digit along the leading edge. The pterosaur power stroke was directed down and forward, and the recovery stroke up and backward, so that the wingtip viewed from the side described a figure of eight shape. At, its, at slow flight speeds, the downstroke was powered by the massive pectoralis muscle, and the upstroke may have been powered by the supracoracoideus muscle, which ran from the sternum over a pulley arrangement at the shoulder joint to the dorsal face of the humerus, or largely by the shoulder muscles. Pterosaurs flew relatively slowly because of their large wings, but efficiently, and they were highly maneuverable. Wind tunnel tests show that pterosaur wing sections had rather higher profile drag and maximum lift coefficients than assumed before. This indicates that large pterosaurs were aerodynamically less efficient and could fly more slowly than previously estimated. Unlike most modern birds, pterosaurs had wings that were adapted for low-speed flight, unsuited to marine-style dynamic soaring, as in albatrosses and gulls, but adapted for thermal and slope soaring and controlled low-speed landing. Pterosaurs could not cope with strong or turbulent winds in the way that smaller, short-winged birds can, and their extensively hollow bones also created risks of damage. Pterosaurs may have taken off from trees and cliffs or jumped into the air after a short run to pick up speed. A novel alternative has been suggested by Witten and Habib, 2010, that pterosaurs launched themselves from a quadrupedal pose, as vampire bats do today, vaulting their hindquarters upwards and pushing on the ground with their muscular forearms. Landing was awkward for the larger pterosaurs, just as it is for large birds, and reinforced pelvis and sacrum would have had to withstand large impacts. Pterosaur senses and brains seem to have been adapted for flying. Pterosaurs had the large eyes and bulbous heads of birds. Indeed, reconstructed pterosaur brains suggest that these animals had a good vision and balance areas in the brain, although their overall brains were relatively smaller than those of birds. Eight point six: The function of the largest flying animals. As darkids are surely the most spectacular of Mesozoic animals, possible flyers that were ten times the size of any living animal today. When first reported, Quetzalcoatlus, with its ten-meter wingspan, was seen as an unbelievable, as unbelievable, and paleontologists have struggled ever since to understand how an animal that stood as tall as a giraffe could be light enough to fly. And if it did not fly, why did it have wings? The diversity and success of Asdarkids has only become evident in the past decades. Remains are known throughout the final 50 million years of the Cretaceous, and these range in estimated size from Montana's Darko from North America, a 2.5 wingsp meter wingspan, to 
Gopteryx from the from Romania, 12 meter wingspan. Morphological features common to all Asdarkids show a long, shallow beak, elongate cylindrical cervical vertebrae that formed a long and unusually flexible neck, inflexible neck, sorry, and proportionally short wings with an abbreviated fourth phalanx. The mode of life of Asdarkids has been intensively debated. Possible interpretations have included suggestions that they lived as vulture-like scavengers, sediment probers, swimmers, waders, aerial predators, or stork-like generalists. Most authors have seen them as massive flyers, skimming for fish across the surface of the ocean, trawling their lower jaws through the water during flight, and seizing aquatic prey from the water's surface. Although this view has been widely accepted, the skim-feeding model lacks support from anatomy and functional morphology. Witten and Neisch, 2008, note that as darkids lack many of the cranial specializations exhibited by skim-feeding birds, most notably the laterally compressed lower jaw and shock-absorbing apparatus in the jaw joint required for this feeding style. Well-preserved as darkid skulls are rare, but their beaks and lower jaws appear to have been sub-triangular in cross-section, and thus different from the blade-like cross-sections seen in living skim-feeders and sediment probers. Key in all these discussions is whether Asdarkids could fly or not. Quetzalcoatlus has been the most studied in this respect, and numerous estimates of its body mass have been given, ranging from 62 to 136 kilograms for a wingspan of 10 to 15 meters. However, these masses are based more on estimates of its uh, more on back calculation from the weight of a particular wing area could support rather than primary evidence of mass. Such estimates would imply that pterosaur soft tissues had mean densities less than 0.25 grams per centimeter cubed, the lowest estimated for any animal. The normal density of flesh is closer to 1 gram per centimeter cubed. Independently, Henderson and Witten, sorry, Henderson, 2010, and Witten and Habib, 2010, used different methods to estimate the body mass of Quetzalcoatlus, allowing for reasonable estimates of the mass of flesh and for maximum amounts of airspace bones and body tissues. Estimates of 544 kilograms and 200 to 250 kilograms respectively are still widely different and led Henderson 2010 to conclude that this giant as dark it could not have heaved its half-ton body off the ground, whereas Witten and Habib 2010 found evidence that this behemoth could have actually flown. As darkids were adept walkers and the wings may then have existed largely for terrestrial locomotion. Geological evidence shows that Asdarkids were predominantly inhabiting inland settings rather than seas or coasts. Further, their anatomy indicates that they were poorly suited for all proposed lifestyles other than wading and terrestrial foraging. However, Asdarkid footprints show that their feet were relatively small, padded, and slender, and thus not well suited for wading. Nit Witten and Neisch, 2008, argue that Asdarkids were stork or ground hornbill-like generalists foraging in diverse environments for small animals and carrion. Proficient terrestrial abilities and a relatively inflexible neck are in agreement with this interpretation. End box. 8.6.3. Pterosaur walking. Just as pterosaurian flying capabilities have been debated, so too has their terrestrial ability. Padian, 1984, argued that pterosaurs walked on fully erect hind limbs. He reconstructed the pelvic girdle of various pterosaurs as firmly fused beneath, and the limb motions just like those of a small bipedal dinosaur. The wings were held tucked horizontally beside the body during running. 
This view has been fairly conclusively disproved on the basis of three independent lines of evidence. One, three-dimensionally preserved pterosaur specimens show that the pelvis is wide at the bottom and that the hind limbs point sideways at an awkward sprawling posture. The legs could not be pulled into an upright posture, and hence bipedality would have been impossible. Two, calculations of balance show that bipedality would have been hard for the smaller pterosaurs and impossible for the larger Cretaceous forms. 3. Most fossil tracks show that pterosaurs walked quadrupedally, and with, with feet wide apart, hind limbs in the John Wayne posture, and the hands far out on either side. What is the John Wayne posture? What does that mean? During walking, the pterosaur used all four limbs, its legs in the middle and its hands a short distance to front and to side, with the wingtips sticking out on either side of the head. The rolling, awkward locomotion of the early Cretaceous pterosaur, Ang- Anhangura may be viewed at... Wow, there's a link. Neat. That'll be it for this, I guess, this part two. And I'll do part three another time. Which will be basically everything that it wasn't a dinosaur or a pterosaur.